Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Ali Al-Kafaji, MD, MPH. He's an author of an article published in the May 2011 edition of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Critical Care Management of Patients with End-Stage Liver Disease. Dr. Al-Kafaji is an Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is also Director of the Transplant Intensive Care Unit at the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. The citation for this article is Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 39, Number 5. Thank you so much, Dr. Alkafaji, for being here today. Thank you so much, Dr. Saval, for allowing me to uh, join you and and discuss uh, our article. Well, as you and I were talking before, um, I really am a a big fan of this article, Critical Care Management of Patients with End-Stage Liver Disease. These patients uh, are often quite common, especially at referral centers like yours and and mine, and they can uh, come with multiple great challenges. And I was very excited about the way you organize things. And uh, for the listeners, our plan today is to let you speak for a few minutes on uh, four very important topics, neurologic complications in these patients, pulmonary complications, GI bleeding, which can be obviously extraordinarily dramatic, and then concluding with hepatorenal syndrome, uh, some prevention issues and management, and then letting you make some concluding comments. Uh, So if you'd uh, like to begin uh, either with some introductory comments or go right into talking about neurological complications of these patients, uh, that would be terrific. Sure. Dr. Saval, I would like to take just a very few moments in uh, in just uh, just talking about why this is very important. I think you know, uh, end-stage liver disease is a quite a quite a common occurrence in in patients in the United States and in the world, and it's around 75,000 people die every year due to end-stage liver disease, and it's uh, it's around the sixth common cause of death in Americans who are middle aged which is 45 to 55 years old, and uh, out of all patients with end-stage liver disease, only 20% get referred to uh, you know get referred to uh, be evaluated for liver transplantation, <clears throat> and uh, 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 very commonly, patients die while they're waiting on on the transplant list. Around around 2,000 patients die every year on the transplant list, and and as as you know, uh, transplant list is growing, uh, and around 17,000 patients are on the on the transplant list. And if you do the calculation and the math, it has been around uh, 6,400 liver transplants in the, in the last year or so. So there is a significant uh, imbalance between patient waiting on the transplant list and uh, getting transplanted. So we see, as you see in, in the ICU, patients when they get decompensated, and it's very, very important concept, uh, uh, differentiating patients who are compensated cirrhotics and when they get decompensated because a patient with a stage one compensated cirrhosis have around 1% mortality rate. And this is when they have no varices and no ascites. And patients when they have decompensated liver disease and stage four, which when they have GI bleeding due to varices and the presence of ascites, their mortality almost uh, 60%. 
So that's why I think it's important to talk about, about the complication. And as you suggested, I think we'll start with the neurological complication. And the, what we see commonly is hepatic encephalopathy. And this is by itself is not really a, a reflection of how the liver function is worsening or how decompensated the liver is. It's usually a reflection that of there is something else trigger uh, the, the, the patient in, in, and put them into hepatic encephalopathy. And um, you know, they, that's why it's very important when we have somebody with hepatic encephalopathy, uh, whatever grade they are, we need to find the, the precipitating factors. And as you know, we see in the ICU patients when they are slightly on the later stages of hepatic encephalopathy. So grade three or grade four is where we see those patients. And, uh, you know, usually we need to rule out the, you know, the big things, you know, infection, uh, hypoxia, uh, electrolyte imbalance, uh, hypokalemia, uh, alkalosis, all these things that we need to rule it out before we, you know, we, we uh, uh, go deeper into the management. So, so, so I think that's a really important point sure. for, for critical care fellows is uh, when you, or, or residents, medical students, when you're seeing a patient like this, don't just say, okay, we're treating this exacerbation of hepatic encephalopathy. Let's find out what caused it. Did this patient perhaps you know, have a, a small myocardial infarction? And as you point out in the article, exactly like you said, infection, gastrointestinal bleeding, and electrolyte and acid-base disturbances, very, very important. And, and important for, for families to know that something may have triggered this and it may be somewhat reversible, right? Sure. That's right. That's exactly right. Once you identify that trigger, uh, the treatment is really very simple. So, so the treatment of hepatic encephalopathy is, is I would say, quite universal. But uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, Dr. Saval, when we actually looked at the evidence and what are we, what are we doing evidence-based? So, you know, uh, aspiration precaution, nobody can argue about that. But the treatment by itself. So uh, we start with lactulose. And in our institution, we use lactulose as a first-line treatment and uh, to, to get the patient to have a three to four bowel movements per day. And subsequently, we add oral antibiotics. Uh, so it was very interesting to actually, uh, I, I thought uh, lactulose is very well proven treatment and I'm going to see tons of evidence when I'm going to look into uh, what is the evidence. And actually, I was very surprised. So the evidence is very weak. And uh, in fact, uh, there are some to suggest that uh, lactulose is no better than placebo. <laughs> but it's, it's the most common use agents. We use it. It makes sense to use it. So, so lactulose will make patients go, you know, uh, have a frequent bowel movement and by which they will decrease the protein or the precursor for, for the, uh, you know, ammonia. And obviously they, they make the bowel slightly acidic, so they favoring lactobacillus and decrease the uh, absorption of ammonia. And, uh, and, and that's, that's how the lactulose work. And it's, you know, you can use it either orally or in a retention enema. Also, you can add oral antibiotics. Uh, oral antibiotics, which, which we use here, uh, you, you know, we use uh, uh, mitronidazole uh, with a dose of 500 milligrams per day, you know, 250 milligrams twice a day, or we use neomycin. And or uh, recently, uh, more and more uh, hepatologists and intensivists are suggesting to use uh, rifaximine. And rifaximine, uh, as you know, is uh, it's quite expensive. Uh, however, it's the, it's the one uh, antibiotic that's been studied that uh, that's shown that will decrease the ammonia level 
will decrease the, uh, you know, uh, in the outpatient settings, clearly it decreases the recurrent admission to, uh, to the hospital. We can't really generalize. There is a, a nice randomized study in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing patients who get lactulose plus uh, rifaximine versus just lactulose, and they found patients who get rifaximine uh, do better. Uh, but I'm not sure we're ready to take this and, and, and run with it and start using it in the ICU. We tend to use uh, any of those antibiotics, and actually we're in the process to standardizing it, and we're having some you know, debate on which one should be our antibiotic of choice. But any of those three antibiotics actually will work. Well, I was, I was going to... Uh ask you about the rifaximin. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, we're in a very similar situation uh, where there's we're adding these new agents with some data, uh, but there isn't complete consensus about whether they're replacing other agents or in addition to other agents, um, and, and I found that very helpful. I did want to read in, just for the listeners, the way you defined hepatic encephalopathy, because that was done so nicely, and then we'll move on. Uh, hepatic encephalopathy is defined as a neuropsychiatric disorder of altered consciousness in patients with liver disease and it occurs as a result of portosystemic shunting and hepatocellular dysfunction. And, and it's very important. I think the key points, as you brought up, is treat it, be concerned about aspiration, and try and figure out the causes, the proximate causes that can be treated to get the patient back to their baseline, right? Right. That's right. And one more point, uh, uh, Dr. Sival, in that regard, and we check ammonia on these patients quite often. And as you well know, uh, ammonia can be helpful, but is not essential. In another word, you can actually have some patients with uh, ammonia level of 100, and they're walking around, and you can have some patient with ammonia of 50, and they're unresponsive. So it actually uh, does not correlate completely the, uh, with the level or the, or the grade of encephalopathy. And that what brings people or, or, or authors and physicians just to see, is there anything else going on? You know, you have the benzodiazepine theory, uh, you have the inflammatory mediator theory, uh, so these are all things that can explain hepatic encephalopathy in patients with normal ammonia level. Great. As a, as a next topic, I thought we'd focus in on some of the pulmonary complications. And again, just for the listeners, the two big ones that you describe here, which you can never talk enough about, are uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome and portopulmonary hypertension. And I thought I'd let you uh, talk for a few minutes about sure. those. Sure. Uh, these are two distinct problems that they can sometimes overlap. So sometimes you can have patients with portopulmonary hypertension who have hepatopulmonary syndrome. Now, both of these problems happen in patients with cirrhosis who have portal hypertension. So portal hypertension is a must in those two cases. Also, the presence of pulmonary hypertension is very important in differentiating the two problems. So in patients with hepatopulmonary syndrome, they don't have pulmonary hypertension. So their pulmonary pressure is normal or sometimes actually low. For patients with portopulmonary hypertension, they almost always have pulmonary hypertension. And why is it important? So in patients with hepatopulmonary syndrome, they usually, the cause of you know, patients, they have hypoxia and the, the, the pathognomic, you know, orthodeoxia and platypnea. So uh, they get hypoxic sitting up and they get short of breath sitting up and they get better when they lay down. So this is in patients with hepatopulmonary syndrome. Uh, and, and the cause of the hypoxia there is right to left shunt, as simple as this. And, uh, you know, the treatment for it is liver transplantation and 
most of patients who get transplantation, liver transplantation, actually, you know, uh, get better. Now, with portopulmonary hypertension, it's important to stage them, you know, is, is, do they have a mild, moderate, or severe? And, and the reason is to stage them and to see which stage they are in is because actually patients with severe portopulmonary hypertension, they can die on the table. You know, so patients when they have, uh, you know, mean pulmonary artery pressure over 45, they are, uh, it's actually contraindication is, you know, to, to give them liver transplant. And patients with mild portopulmonary hypertension, they benefit from liver transplant. Moderate to severe, moderate portopulmonary hypertension, they can actually get help with treatment with, with some arterial vasodilators or, uh, you know, uh, uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors such as Viagra treatment before they get liver transplantation, and then they get liver transplantation. And then the severe portopulmonary hypertension, maybe they have a fixed uh, disease and they will actually have, uh, you know, you will do them harm than good doing, giving them liver transplantation. One thing which is important is to evaluate the right ventricle. Uh, so we've transplanted actually patients with portopulmonary hypertension when we thought it severe, but there had a normal right ventricle size and function, and these patients actually you can get away with a liver transplantation and they can actually benefit them quite significantly. And clearly the fear is these patients, you know, they can have right ventricular failure and they get, you know, that leads to graft failure if they survive the surgery. So I want to make a couple other points. That was incredibly helpful. So in terms of the portal pulmonary hypertension, again, in terms of the mechanism as you describe it here, you say the, the vasoactive substances that are metabolized in the liver travel to the pulmonary circulation via portosystemic shunts, causing vasoconstriction. Again, so it's it's not dissimilar to some of the other mechanisms in these patients. And and then the other important point is, as you say, in, our, in your institution that you use an ipoprostenol infusion titrated to a mean pulmonary artery pressure less than 25 millimeters of mercury guided by pulmonary artery catheter. And the, one of the other crucial points that you mentioned is fixed versus reversible. And this must be uh, dramatic and come up in your ICU when you're deciding whether or not a patient like this can go for transplant, right? Right, absolutely, absolutely. And it's very difficult. I mean, it's a, it's sometimes it's a really difficult decision. One thing which is important is you have to have a good graft. Uh, so somebody, you know, who are borderline pulmonary hypertension and you're actually transplanting them, you've got to have to use a really good uh, graft and, and you have to get a, uh, as good a graft as possible. I, I know that it was a topic we weren't going to cover, but it does relate uh, in terms of discussing cardiovascular dysfunction, even just because I thought that the, the way you worded it was so nice, where you talk about the cirrhotic cardiomyopathy. Um, these patients, you're taking a patient who may already have some cardiogenic dysfunction and then superimposing upon it pulmonary hypertension and then asking them to switch from sort of a vasodilated state of having chronic liver disease to not having that when they get in a new liver. So there can be vast shifts in hemodynamics, right? That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I thought the other important points that, uh, just for the sake of time, were to focus a lot on uh, gastrointestinal bleeding because, uh, as I said before, in terms of drama, if somebody asked me the most dramatic cases I've seen in my career, it's it's liver patients with GI bleeding. And so if you wanted to take really uh, as much time as you wanted to focus in on how to think about some of these patients and, and how your institution manages them, that would sure. be great. 
Sure. So, so clearly, you know, it's it's important. Uh, it's actually it's a quite a landmark time when you have somebody who have variceal bleeding. Uh, people have variceal bleeding because they have significant portal hypertension and they have a high gradient, so they start, you know, having variceal bleeding. Whether it's an esophageal varices or it is a you know gastric varices, this is when actually the most mortality patients with end-stage liver disease happen is when they have their uh, GI bleeding. Uh, and this, this is, you know, uh, clearly somebody comes in uh, or we get frequently calls from outside hospitals. They want to transfer a patient with GI bleeding. We know that they are cirrhotic, so we, we admit them to the ICU. Uh, we actually secure their airway uh, with intubation, especially uh, if they are actively vomiting blood. Uh, we get an adequate venous access. It doesn't have to be a big, you know, line. It, it can be a nice peripheral line, but in, in this day and age, everybody gets a central line. So uh, we, 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 you know, we give them adequate access. We volume resuscitate them. And then clearly, uh, it's very debated in the hepatology community or what is the uh, you know, INR, what is the coagulopathy that you're, the, the endoscopist is willing to scope a patient who have active GI bleeding. And, and again, this is one thing which I was surprised uh, with. You know, we always try to get their coagulopathy as normal as possible, and sometimes you just can't do that. You know, they are just continue to be coagulopathic. Looking at the literature, nothing actually, no evidence exists to suggest that a patient with active GI bleeding from varices should have a normal coagulopathy or they will benefit from being normal coagulopathy because, as you know, this is related to just very high pressure and that's why they bleed. They don't bleed because they're coagulopathic. And let me just interject there because I think that's... That's sort of the quintessential thing where a calm discussion, interdisciplinary discussion with the endoscopists, the hepatologists, and the intensivists in a room before it happens can make all the difference in the world, right? Yes, because right. when it's two in the morning and the patient's right. INR is that's three right. and a half right. and they're bleeding, nobody's right. going to want to hear anything except we're giving FFP and vitamin that's, K, that, right? That, that's exactly right. And even now, uh, even now, we, we continue to give FFP and vitamin K although it's not, you know, it's not supported by the evidence. But clearly, I am not the endoscopist, so I can't really tell them what is... Right, the, right, right. So the first thing, in the, in the ER or in the outside hospital, what I first tell them, just make sure the patient gets octreotide. This is actually the first very important medication that you can give. And that, in quite a lot of cases, actually can, uh, you know, improve the, the, the situation. So if somebody is bleeding significantly, they start bleeding less, actually. And uh, give them uh, octreotide, and clearly you start them on, on antibiotics. Octreotide usually for five days, antibiotics for seven days. Antibiotics is very important. It's been shown to decrease all-cause mortality, decrease the re-bleeding rate, and decrease the spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And this is any GI bleeding in patients with end-stage liver disease, not only variceal. So if somebody comes in with an ulcer, they also benefit uh, from uh, giving antibiotics. And, and the concept there is that the risk, of A, that it's been studied and shown in, in trials, but B, yeah. the, the, to, for teaching medical students, the bacterial translocation issues that, are just that, so so high uh, that, that, that this has been shown, right? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then the next thing, you know, once you have the patient tucked in, 
getting, you know, giving them blood, blood products and, uh, and you know, uh, octreotide and antibiotics, then you actually uh, have to get them scoped. And the recommendation clearly is, is getting scoped within 12 hours and the treatment is endoscopic band ligation. And this is compared to sclerotherapy has been shown that it's actually the better treatment. It happens not that unfrequently that actually they put the scope in and they can't see anything. The patient is actively bleeding, so that's when we get, you know, the Minnesota tube place or balloon tamponade, whatever you use, whether you use a single stake in Blakemore or, or, or use Minnesota tube. And that has a very, very nice success rate, almost 85%. You can control the bleeding with balloon tamponade, and then you decide whether you want to take another look with endoscopy or you can just send the patient to uh, rescue tips. We've, ha- we've had really very good success rate with endoscopic band ligation, and um, it depends on the, on the institution. It depends on how comfortable the endoscopists are. I, I suspect that uh, in, your, in your institution, the same thing happens. You know, somebody comes and put the scope in, try to control the bleeding with band ligation. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, a couple more, and even just to to expand upon it about sure. the balloon and the and the tips. Will yes. this be a decision where the like the surgeon, the endoscopist, and the intensivist will be sort of all there at the same time, and there will be consensus about how things are going to go, starting out with with an attempted upper endoscopy? Or could you talk yes. about that some more? Yeah. So 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 actually, our surgeons are not involved in this. Uh, it's mostly the intensivist and the and, and the hepatologist and the endoscopist. So the patient patient is intubated, again, tucked in, you put the scope in, and you'll see. Sometimes you see so much that you are absolutely uh, positive that the patient has esophageal variceal bleeding, but you just can't control it because of the significant amount of bleeding. So these patients, uh, the, the, the treatment is very simple. Take the scope out, put them in a sauté tube, tamponade it for at least 12 hours, and next Scope. Next look will be in in the IR suite. So, oh, so really, we take, really, yeah, we'll go to the interventional radiology suite, and you know, ready to do the tips. Take another look. If you can do the band ligation, then 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 you'll do it. If you can't, then you just go for rescue tips. And especially now, you know, after the New England Journal of Medicine article uh, that that shown that you know early tips in patients with the active GI bleeding when they are. Uh, child B or uh, when they are child C, even if they are not actively bleeding, have improved mortality. I don't know. Uh, I, do you know what I'm talking about? So there is a, there is a new... When was it published? Right. This I was think? published. I'm, I'm looking at your paper now. This is yes. reference 134, Garcia Pagan, New England Journal of Medicine, 2010, that, 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 volume. I'll just give it for the for the listeners. Uh, sure. 362, pages 2370 to 2379. Early use of tips in patients with cirrhosis and variceal bleeding. So that, I, I think that's what you're referring that, to, right? That's exactly right. So these these guys came in, you know, GI bleeding and cirrhotics. They basically randomized them into everyone got endoscopic band ligation. But one group got tips within 72 hours. The other group got no tips. And they found that the patients who got tips had much better survival and less re-bleeding rate. And we're, you know, clearly, as you know, the problems with tips is you can get complications such as encephalopathy and heart failure. And in that paper, they didn't really see this happening. And uh, we're still we're still debating, you know, whether we should adapt this. But we're doing more and more 
uh, early tips. And this also depends on your you know, intervention radiologist and how comfortable they are with the procedure. Uh, so this really it has to be you know, institution-based. And the key, um, the, the, just for, again for background for like sure. medical students, is the reason uh, you might go for earlier tips is you avoid some of the morbidity of these repeat endoscopies and, and, and things like that? Is that the idea? That's right. So that's one. And then the other, the other one is just to decrease the gradient because you will have a portosystemic gradient. And the higher the portosystemic gradient is, the more likely you're going to have, you know, GI bleeding from esophageal varices or gastric varices. So, so short of a transplant, you're actually treating the fundamental problem. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And then I guess the the other question I was going to ask you about is maybe talk for a few minutes about uh, beta blockers and and prevention yes. and what role they have maybe in the ICU sure. if any. So, and then and then I've been asked about this uh, multiple times. You know, so you have what other agents can decrease the portal hypertension, the portal and decrease the portal pressure. So uh, we know you know octreotide, vasopressin, terlipressin, all that decrease the portal hypertension, but agents such as you know, beta blockers and uh, nitroglycerin are very, you know, very good in decreasing the portal pressure. Uh, However, you know, I don't know about anyone, but I will be very, very anxious and and afraid of using beta blockers or nitroglycerin in somebody with actively bleeding. Uh, However, subsequently, I think it's, uh, it's reasonable to use beta blockers. But at the time of the active bleeding, I will be, although it's very attractive and it may help, I think it will be very, uh, very difficult to make an argument to use it. So these are these are definitely medicines uh, that have been shown to be uh, protective in in, in trials uh, yeah. that the patients will hopefully be leaving the hospital on. And your point is the timing of starting them in the ICU should be left to the discretion of the critical care team when it's safe, right? That, 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 that's exactly right, yes. I wanted to ask you also, uh, you mentioned in your article, again for the listeners, about gastric varices versus esophageal, and I thought you made some important points if you want to talk about those. Just yes, sure. So in, in esophageal varices, the treatment we can band, you know, we can band the varices and, and we can f- do follow-up banding. With the gastric varices, sometimes you can band them if they are you know, near the gastroesophageal junction. But most of those patients are very difficult to treat and, and unless you decrease the portal pressure. So by doing tips or surgical shunt, uh, other than that, uh, and obviously liver transplantation, these patients will be at very high risk of, of bleeding without this, this treatment. There is a treatment that is, we don't actually use, uh, they call it the glue. So basically they use a glue into these varices, into these gastric varices, uh, that I think they do it frequently in Europe, but we don't we don't do them here. I think there is a couple of places, if I'm not mistaken, in Colorado, in a research environment, but it's not been used uh, that frequently. So for the gastric varices, the best treatment is to create a shunt, whether it's a TIPS or whether it's a surgical shunt, and subsequently liver transplantation. So if they see that, then having a lower threshold to just have that patient get a, an urgent TIPS, right. I would imagine, right? Right, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, in terms of talking about hepatorenal syndrome, yes. um, just to, to for the sake of time, this was another super, super important area, and I'm just going to read in one sentence and let you take it from there. Sure. But just to, uh, as I'm going on as an, as an intensivist, certain things that people will present to me will make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, like if they tell me I'm about to get a patient with critical aortic stenosis, or uh, now that I'm, you know, as, as you learn more about this hepatorenal syndrome, and as you point out here, without liver transplantation, patients who have hepatorenal syndrome uh, develop 
have a median survival time of approximately three months. <laughs> and right. so uh, I thought I'd let you take it from there. Sure, sure. So it's, if you know that the patient has hepatorenal syndrome, then that's exactly right. That's, that's how bad of a prognostic uh, a sign or a problem that is. Uh, the problem is, you know, see these patients come in, you need to really exclude all other causes of renal failure before you say this patient has hepatorenal syndrome. Uh, so you need to exclude the, you know, again, the good old, you know, pre-renal, renal, post-renal, and then you make sure that you've corrected uh, the intravascular volume, uh, you are not giving any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or ACE inhibitors or things that can cause uh, renal failure. And if you end up, where, you know, with the diagnosis of hepatorenal syndrome, then you need to treat them. Uh, European has actually had the most, uh, I would say the Italians, have the most experience with hepatorenal syndrome in regards to randomized control trials, and they've used volume resuscitation usually with albumin and then vasoconstrictors uh, such as, uh, you know, terlipressin, which we don't have in this country. So, so the main treatment is if the patient has ascites, you drain the ascites, you intravascular volume resuscitate with albumin, and, with, and then you use vasoconstrictors. So these vasoconstrictors is either telepressin, or in this country we use, and in our institution, we use octreotide and midodrine, or you can use you know, norepinephrine, uh, or you can use dopamine. So any, any agent that can cause uh, vasoconstriction and keep the mean arterial pressure in an adequate uh, number. So somebody who is known hypertensive, you need to get their uh, mean arterial pressure in the 70s or so. And you need to give it enough time to work. So, so usually you get the response within two weeks. And then you can obviously certain things that can support the, the diagnosis. So urine sodium of less than 10. And again, you know, the presence of ascites that can support the diagnosis of hepatorenal syndrome. And again, as, um, as we all learn, but again, for, for people listening, so it's pre-renal azotemia that doesn't get better with fluids. That's that, the, the that, sentence that, I remember. Right. And then just to define the two types, as you do here, I'll, I'll just say them in here. In type 1 hepatorenal syndrome, there's a rapid deterioration in kidney function with the serum creatinine increasing by greater than 100% from baseline to greater than 2.5 milligrams per deciliter within a two-week period. Right. And type 2 occurring in patients with a steady but moderate degree of renal dysfunction or a deterioration in kidney function that does not fulfill the criteria for type 1 hepatorenal syndrome. Right. That's exactly right. And then we've sort of run out of time. I, I wanted to, and I'll, I'll take a couple of minutes here to talk about your very, very end of the paper, which I, we, sure. you and I have spoken about before and I really think is important. You talk about transplant candidacy. Yes. And you point out this conundrum that you and your unit must deal with very, very frequently in the terms of patients coming on and off the transplant list and getting patients with a goal of getting them into this window of clinical stability. Right. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll just let you take it from there then. So sure, sure. And it's, you know, it's a, a patient gets seen by hepatology and multidisciplinary uh, meeting. We decide the patient should be listed, will be listed for transplant, and then they come in with, say, you know, sepsis, septic shock due to spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So these patients now, they are decompensated. Their MELT score goes from 
20 to, you know, say 36 or, or almost 40, and then what do you do? So these patients should not be transplanted at this point. And as, as, as we said in the article, we just need to make sure that the family understand that our goal will be we'll treat the current situation, the current problems, the current uh, issue that brought the patient to the ICU, and we want to make sure that doesn't recur. Uh, so he doesn't, the patient doesn't have recurrent, uh, you know, sepsis episodes. And then obviously we have to, if they are listed for transplant, we have to activate them because usually we deactivate uh, the patients if they are very sick. And then we have to look for availability for organs and then successful transplantation will be done if the patient is out of that, you know, out of that critical situation which, you know, sometimes it's very difficult for family members and for patients to know why am I not getting my liver transplant, but they are really too sick to get liver transplant. So this is, this is the not too sick and not too, you know, well to get that. that sometimes it takes a really more than, more than one discipline to, you know, uh, it's an inter- interaction between intensivists and transplant surgeons and the hepatologists to decide if this is the, the right time for the liver transplantation. And this is not uncommon. You know, we discuss that very frequently. And again, as, as, as you point out, because it was just so great to read it in your article, that A, these can be incredibly complex psychosocial discussions between the critical care team and the hepatology team because they have to stay on the same page. Right. And then these complex, complex family meetings and repeat family meetings and complex changes in, in, in status with the families. It can be a roller coaster for, right. for, for everybody, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've been speaking today uh, on a very, very important topic with Dr. Ali Al-Kafaji. He's from the University of Pittsburgh, one of the preeminent liver transplant centers in the world. And we've been talking about his article recently published in Critical Care Medicine as a concise, definitive review critical care management of patients with end-stage liver disease. It's really been a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Saval. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. SCCM has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. These publications include Current Concepts in Both Adult and Pediatric Critical Care, Coding and Billing for Critical Care, 4th Edition, Therapeutic Hypothermia in the ICU, Critical Care Units, 2nd Edition, and Self-Assessment in Pediatric Multiprofessional Critical Care. For more information on these and other publications, visit SCCM's online store at www.sccm.org store. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email i 
criticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.